Thanks for joining us. We love getting to share the message of God's grace with the entire world. If his message has impacted your life, would you share your testimony with us by emailing it to stories at graceorlando.com. We love to hear what God is up to. You can also give in support of this ministry by going to our website and clicking on the Give button at graceorlando.com. Thanks again. Well, he didn't read the script as they gave it to him. There was much more I was going to have him introduce me for. Everybody doing okay? Well, in the midst of all that's going on, God's in charge. Always has been, always will be. His plans and his purposes to uh, present himself and all that he's accomplished uh, continues unabated throughout the world and, uh, and here in the U.S., no matter what the season seems to portray. If we keep our eyes on that, by the way, you'll weather the storms better. Because I, I just uh, I get a little weary of the conflict that we cause among ourselves and throughout the world and you know, how the church seems to stay disengaged. Won't it be wonderful when the church comes alive again, starts blinking her eyes and walks in, in purpose and destiny and identity again and, and affects and impacts the world around us in a greater way. That's what God's purposed us for. And uh, the capacity is there, but uh, I think we've been a little bit uh, lazy, perhaps, spiritually, maybe a little bit uh, slumbering, uh, taking naps in the midst of all that's going on. So let's, uh, let's just believe God for greater things. Let's pray before I begin. Father, thank you for the joy of life and for uh, the fact that you've called us into far more than we have yet to discover. Thank you for the adventure of the Christian life, the adventure of discovering all that you have in store for us. I pray this morning, Lord, just a, a releasing, an unveiling, if you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit to help us to see into the far more, the richer, the greater, the bigger things that you have in store for us. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I was able to, I had the privilege of serving here at Grace Church for five years as executive pastor with Clark Javen and, and others. And... Um, the thrill of my life. When I first came to Grace Church, I had very little understanding of grace and uh, was fighting some of that internally and, uh, and would come to Clark every now and then and says, well, this is what I heard. I just, I, I don't know. What do you think about it? And Clark says, well, I pretty much agree. When it comes to the fact of, of the grace, the mercy, the plan and gloriousness of Christ and what he's accomplished that is full and complete and and all of a sudden, I blinked my eyes, and, and the reality of all that Christ has accomplished became real for me. Changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything about, about you individually and the way you perceive life and, and opportunity and others. So um, I'm a product of, of Grace Church. And uh, the opportunity I have now to, um, to oversee the, the ministries of Missionary Adventures, we're now in about uh, 100 and uh, I think it's... Uh, 304 countries, uh, missionaries that are, are well-trained to be entrepreneurial in their way of, of reaching out to the world and embracing them and bringing them to the story of Christ's redemptive work, empowering nationals and leaders so that they can reach their own people for Christ, uh, and it's an absolute joy and privilege. Now, my pastoring hasn't stopped. I, 
I pastored in churches, but now I pastor missionaries. So, and some of the some of the juices still flow when I get opportunity to do that. But a lot of it is, is on the executive level, administrative fundraising, and all those kinds of things. And and that's the hard work of ministry. But uh, things are going really well uh, during the COVID-19 uh, era. A lot of our, if not most of our travel, has stopped. Certainly, international travel has. Uh, there's still some domestic travel uh, that engage in periodically. I just got back from a 2,000-mile road trip on motorcycle. Uh, that was an absolute joy. Uh, part of our, one of our dynamic relationships as a ministry is with the Christian Motorcyclist Association. And they do what's called Run for the Sun uh, every year. And it's, it's a fundraising for, uh, for missions and for outreach. And they give 60% of what they raise to ministry partners. 20% would come to Missionary Ventures. What that meant last year was a check for $962,000. Uh, and what we do with that is, we, we're, our commitment is to purchase transportation, primarily motorcycles, for indigenous pastors, leaders, and church planters around the world that don't have transportation. You give them the ability to get to the places they're going by foot, in the bush of Africa, or, or whatever means, sometimes by public uh, transportation, if that can be found or if it can be afforded. And you give them transportation for what they're already doing, and, and churches, uh, the planting of churches explodes, evangelism explodes, discipleship explodes. It's just, it's just absolutely phenomenal. We've seen uh, uh, in over history, let's see if I can just remember the numbers, uh, uh, we've given over 14,000 motorcycles. I believe that, I believe that, no, 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 7,000 motorcycles, 7,000 bicycles. Uh, carts and buggies and horses and, uh, and snowmobiles and all different kinds of transportation depending upon what the, what the climate uh, requires, what the geography requires, and even one camel has been given. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, the, the reports get back. We try to track each one of those forms of transportation for a minimum of three years to, to make sure that the gift of transportation is producing the, the impact that we're desiring. And uh, when we get those numbers back, it's staggering. Over 14 million people have come to Christ just because of transportation that's been provided. And uh, I believe that deserves an applause. That's absolutely awesome. Yeah. And, and all glory goes to the Lord. That's just a mechanism that God is using. And, uh, and much thanks goes to the Christian Motorcycle Association who believes in evangelism and, uh, and gives such a tremendous asset. Uh, to ministries like ours. The other is Jesus Film, the other is Open Doors. Those are the three ministry partners with the Christian Motorcycle Association that we work very closely with. And those are the people I rode motorcycles with for the last uh, uh, week for the 2,000 miles from, from Arkansas to far west Texas. All right, this morning, I, uh, Javen asked me, says, says, would you like to take part in, a, in the series that he's uh, preaching about introducing us uh, one another to the Father? Uh, to God himself and who he is and what he does. The more that we know about God, the more we'll love him. And the more we'll relate to him, the more we'll receive from him, to be quite honest. Um, there's a lot of preconceived ideas that religion has brought to our attention, to our mind, that we've been taught in many ways. That's just simply not right. It's not accurate. Uh, God is far bigger than the religious boxes that we've constructed for him. And so when we have a better idea of who he is, we love him all the more. And uh, that's what I hope to do is help you see him so you can love him and receive from him in, in greater capacity. I've discovered that God is an initiator by nature. 
he initiates. Religion would seem to indicate that it's our responsibility to initiate if we're going to know God and get into receiving. But the fact of the matter is he's the initiator. And if we accept and favorably respond to his initiation of himself and revelation of who he is and what he does, then there is more behind that that he begins to reveal to us. He opens up our eyes, makes our ears attentive to his words, to what he's speaking, to what he's saying. And uh, so it, what, what begins as an initiate, uh, initiated contact, if, if we'll be open to what he's saying, what he's doing, he gives us more. And the, and the more is even more intriguing, more exciting, that keeps us hungry and thirsty after all that he has in mind. So we favorably respond to him, he reveals himself in greater measure, but what happens if we reject? Well, here's the good news. He continues to initiate his love and his presence. Religion would tend to think, well, he crosses his arm and uh, looks the other way, dusts off his feet and uh, says, well, well you know, if, you, if, you'll, if you change your mind, if you, if you uh, get your act straight, then we will go at this again. But that's not how God does. He continues to pour out himself towards you, continues to reach after you. And so that's a great thing about God, isn't it? So let's talk about God as a pursuer. If he's the initiator, the first thing I want to talk about is him being the pursuer. He pursues us. Now, the Bible reveals um, that we're designed by him to pursue God in ways because we're hungry for things greater than ourselves. In Jeremiah 29, 13, the word says, if we'll seek God with our whole heart, you know what that means? It means sincerely seeking after him. If, If we'll sincerely seek after him, what's the promise? Do you know? What does that word say? We'll find him. If we'll seek after him with all our hearts, if we'll seek after him sincerely, we'll find him. So God is discoverable. Uh, There might seemingly be distance, but it's not by his making. It's by our own thinking, by our own making. So there's a couple things about God that this verse would reveal to us. Number one is God wants you to want him. And so this is a love affair that he's after. It's not after an army. It's not after a bunch of people that will just bow their knee and do what they're told. It's a love affair. God wants you to want him. Secondly, he wants you to find him. I think that's an absolutely magnificent thing. In Psalms, the word says that the crown of kings is that they search after a matter. The the inquisitive nature of of man is to find something out that they don't already know. They suspect, but they want to know more. And such it is with the mystery of God. We can't know everything about him, but what little we know about him causes us to want to know more. He wants you to want him. He wants you to find him. Um, I want you to look in Genesis chapter 38, because in, in the very beginning, the, uh, God shows his nature of that he wants to pursue us, that he's, wanting to, he's, he's the one that's after us. And there we find uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they've already committed sin, and, and the word says that they ran away from God, not toward him in the midst of their situation. And the Lord is walking in the garden, and he calls out to man and says, where are you? And it's not that he didn't know where they were. He's wanting them to hear his voice that's pursuing them, that's searching, searching after them. Where are you? Where are you? 
Man has a tendency to run from God, not toward him. And religion will always do that, by the way. Because your thinking is, when you misbehaved, when you've done something wrong, when there's been something that's captivated your heart and mind that's pulled you uh, relationally away from comprehending his presence, you'll want to, your tendency is to stay away. Because you're ashamed. You're heartbroken. Uh, you don't really want to look at yourself, and your perception is that God doesn't want to look at you either. That somehow, if you give enough time, if you do enough penance, if you'll do something, somehow all of that, that, that damage can somehow be repaired, and now you can approach God. But that's not what God is after. It's, it's not your activities or your behavior that, that, that uh, draws him. It's you. Damaged or not. I'm, we're all damaged. Damaged, damaged, damaged. So God pulls us and draws us toward himself, and we saw that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus, when he's uh, teaching on the parables and the lost sheep and the lost coin, there in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 10, I believe that is uh, there to be seen, what he does is he shows what the Father is like. He says the, um, uh, the shepherd leaves the 99 because there's one lost, and he's not willing that any just be lost. So he pursues them. It's like the woman that has 10 silver coins, and one coin is misplaced and lost. And she tears apart, the, tears apart the entire house to find that single coin. And when she finds it, just like when the shepherd finds the lost, the, 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 the lost sheep, there is a massive celebration. And such it is with God the Father and with all of heaven when the lost are found. Jesus is constantly trying to help us understand the heart of God because the world has a tendency to think of God as angry and distant, furrowed in his brow, and uh, highly demanding. But the Word said, Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So your warm thoughts and biblical understanding of Jesus that are accurate are accurate about the Father. They are one and the same. That's good to know. Jesus' mission on earth was to seek and to save that which is lost. That sounds like a pursuit for me. To seek something is to pursue it. Look with me to Isaiah 65, 1 through 3. Because here, even uh, the, God's pursuit, again, as, as I mentioned before, is not because that we're really pursuable, that we're all that valuable. Well, we are because God creates value in, our, in and of ourselves. But he pursues us because he loves us. And here in uh, Isaiah 65, 1 through 3, this is what the Word says. It says, I revealed myself. It's the Father speaking through the prophet. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am, it's me. All day long, I've held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, pursuing their own imaginations of people who continually provoke me to my very face. So even when we are in sad shape, and by the way, that seems like that's common among all of us, God still pursues us. I think that's absolutely marvelous. He pursues us as lost people, he pursues us when we're broken, he pursues us when we're angry, he pursues us when we're wicked in our behavior, he pursues us when we're diseased and outcast, he, he uh, pursues us when we're poor, wretched, and blind, he pursues us as sinners, and he even pursues the wayward saint. Dear brother and sister, 
there are times when you don't believe that you're pursuable. Well, if you're looking at your behavior, I can understand your conclusion. But that's not what God looks at. He sees you. Sees you. And because his nature is love, that's how he pursues. He's pursuing from love and responds to you and relates to you by his grace. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Sounds like good news and sounds like a God who loves to pursue people who need him. That's really good. So God's intent in his pursuit is to find us, to capture us. Uh, so that brings me to the second point, and that's to rescue us. God's a pursuer, and he's a rescuer. He's not pursuing you to beat you to a pulp so that you'll do better. He's not pursuing you to somehow strike into your thinking how never to do that again. That's, that's not what he's pursuing you for. He's pursuing you to rescue you. Psalms 106, 40 through 46, incredible verses here. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He even abhorred his inheritance, very hurt and bothered by their behavior and by their mentality and by their distance that they were maintaining between themselves and him. Verse 41, then he gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were subdued under their power. Listen, verse 43, many times he would deliver them. He would seek to deliver. Many times he would seek to deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and they sank down in their iniquities. And then verse 44 starts with the word nevertheless. You ought to circle that word every time you see it. Nevertheless, because it, it's a huge contrast. Here, here's what the situation was, and here's what God is going to do. It's really marvelous. It's a great, great uh, word that nevertheless he looked upon their distress and as he heard their cry he remembered his covenant for their sake and the word covenant is a powerful word I won't go much into it but the fact of the matter is God initiates covenant God initiates that not us God God initiates his covenant he remembered his initiated covenant for their sake he relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness and he made them objects of compassion. Isn't that good to know about God the Father? Does he sound as scary and as distant and as uh, unapproachable as what you might have thought in the past? No matter what, how long you've understood grace, I think there's still a, a tendency to think of God as distant, but he isn't. He is as much passionate as his son who displayed all that the Father was. Many times he would have rescued them, the, the Israelites. But they were bent on rebellion. They sank down their iniquity. But he came to rescue them, rescue them from their sin, to rescue them from death, to rescue them from false, empty claims of religion, to, empty, to rescue them from worldly lies, to rescue them from hellish clutches of the evil one, and to rescue them from themselves. God pursues us. And when he captures us by his love, which, which means that we have... We've, we're not refusing his pursuit. He rescues us. And the cost of that for him was everything. Don't ever think that it wasn't pricely or costly. Grace is very costly, not to us, but it was to God. Cost him everything to be able to capture us, 
to rescue us. Rescue is an important word, but oh my, incredibly costly to God in the giving up of his only begotten. So in love, he pursues us, and in his grace, he rescues us. That brings me to the third point. God is not only a pursuer and a rescuer, he's also a restorer. Now, I can't wait to unpack this just a little bit for you. Because restoration is commonly thought of restoring to original condition. Right? When you assume that that's what the word restoration means. If that is the case, however, not much has been solved for us. We don't need to be restored to original condition. We need to be restored to original intent. What is God's original intent for you and for me? As to become sons and daughters of the Most High. Things have to change for that to happen. And it's not just conduct and behavior. It's DNA. Things have to change. And uh, that's what God is intent on doing in his pursuit, in his rescue, in his desire to restore. So the original intention that God has in mind is a new creation in Christ. Where old things are passed away, all things become new. What held us in captivity, what held us in bondage, what held us in separation from God had to be removed, had to be dealt with once and for all. Once and for all, otherwise it could never be secure. We would never have confidence that our position with God would be sustainable because we'd be looking at our own behavior, our own faith, and our own efforts to see if that would accomplish that. Right, Mike? Yeah. So it's not that. It's not that at all. It's his behavior. It's his faithfulness. It's his conduct that must satisfy that. And that's exactly what was accomplished on our behalf. So the good news is what we're talking about. And I've had opportunity to talk about the good news uh, frequently on various mission trips with some of our leaders and so forth. As, as I have reminded myself and, and rediscovered just how good the good news is. The good news by its very nature is good all the time. All the time. The church is the bearer of the greatest news that could ever be shared. You and I, the body of Christ, have the greatest news that the world could ever uh, hear, could ever enjoy. And it's not just good news to the lost in order to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That sounds like good news. But it doesn't stop there. So much I see on the billboards of many churches as if they've lost concept of good news. It's bad news, somehow thinking that's going to attract people to the church. Oh my gosh, how ridiculous, how frustrating, how damaging. What about the good news? Why aren't we preaching good news all the time to ourselves as well as uh, to the world? I believe Grace Church does do that. I think we have a good comprehension of good news. So the good news to the lost, believe and be saved, to the saved, Recognize the reality that you were once unrighteous, now you're righteous in Christ. You once were unholy, now you have been made holy. You were once imperfect and separated from God, and now you're perfect and drawn into his presence. You were once unsanctified, now you're sanctified. You were once unjustified, now you're justified. You were once irreconcilable, now you've been reconciled. For goodness sake, the news just gets better and better and better. Why aren't we trumpeting the good news? And the world doesn't comprehend it. That's why it's doing what it's doing. Not just the U.S., but around the world. Lost humanity and religious-minded humanity is, kept, is caught up and captivated by one another. 
not about what God has accomplished. We need to rediscover what it means to be identified in Christ. Christ our identity, not liberalism, not conservatism, not, not the politics, not, not all these things that separate and bind and, and construct barriers. It's Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The good news. And the good news is always there to be told. And it doesn't have to be preached from a pulpit or a stage. It's shared in love and tenderness to one another when the right time comes. It's not a forced upon kind of thing. It's not always handing out a, a religious pamphlet of some sort. That can be used. God uses that all the time. I'm not suggesting you don't do that. But what I'm saying is it's far more natural and organic in the way that it can be conveyed and portrayed. Some of you are far better with words and, and uh, have no, comp- uh, no, no, uh, no challenge to speak it out. Wonderful. Continue to do that. Others are a little bit more timid. But your behavior, your love, your, your sensitivity gives opportunity for Christ to be revealed. So the good news is there all the time. What does the Bible say about restoration? Let's Finalize our thoughts about that for just a moment. Well, I think the best way to do that is to read some verses, scripture verses. Let's begin in Amos chapter 9, verse 14. Thinking about restoration. God pursuing us, rescuing us in order to restore us. Amos 9, 14, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Sounds like God has good intentions when he restores his people. Isaiah 61, 7, instead of your shame, oh, this is one of the most powerful verses. Have you ever felt ashamed? Have you? I have. That's not a comfortable and uh, not a comfortable place to be. It's very hurtful. It, you're embarrassed. You pull away. You'd, you'd rather no one see you. you. You don't want even God to see you. And so shame is a horrible, damaging thing. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. So what's caused the shame? Very poor decisions, damaging decisions, rebellious decisions, uh, not well thought out decisions, perhaps well thought out decisions, all of which are damaging and painful, not only to you, but to your family and to others. The word says, instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. God's talking about here and now and in the eternal future. Does that sound like good news to you? Sure does to me too. Isaiah 61, 7. Don't forget that verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, God says. You don't know what they are, but I do. I have plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Plans that will not cause harm and everlasting, excuse me, and and plans to give you hope and a future. So I want to prosper you. I'm not here to harm you. My plans are to give you a hope and a future. I, I know what it feels like to feel like things have been forfeited. I know what it feels like when you feel like you've been discarded. I know what it feels like when, when life's uh, information in your economy, in your relationships, in other, other forms and fashions that you would weigh uh, the truth of 
your present future and what your future will look like in the past. And you can come to conclusions saying, well, I guess I've blown it. And I guess even God can't fix this. I know how that can feel. And sometimes the season is prolonged. Sometimes it lasts far longer than any of us would like. Well, it always lasts longer than we like, but sometimes far longer. But, the, but to know what God's plan is will help you weather, because we all have those storms, to weather that, to know that he says, my plans for you are to prosper you. My plans are not to harm you. My plans are to give you a hope and a future. And if the hope and future are determined by him, trust me, it's going to be good. It's going to be better than what you could produce and manufacture on your own. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, even after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Where are, are the amens that should be saying? <laughs> That's awesome. That's good news. Make me strong, firm, and steadfast. I want that. I want that. There are times I don't feel that. There have been times I've been driving home, and when, there was an occasion when it was, a, it was an hour and 15 to hour and a half as I traveled to the Missionary Adventures office south of downtown. This was before we moved to Maitland Boulevard area. And um, it would give me a chance to kind of hear God and, because, boy, I was hearing myself, and I was hearing uh, the finances, and I was hearing... Uh, challenges, and I, I, just, I was just overwhelmed, and I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to fix it. I couldn't fix it. I was trying. I Lord, I, who else am I supposed to call, and what am I supposed to, I, I don't know, Lord. How am I, how's my team going to be built up and strengthened? Because I don't have anything to offer them today. I just, you know, that, that was my pity party as I was driving in, and trust me, it's happened many, many occasions. And so there was a real blessing that my travel was an hour and a half on, on many occasions to get there. And I can tell you that over and over again, the still small voice of the Father said, Bill, I didn't call you to fail. I didn't bring you in. I didn't lead you into this position to cause you to be a failure. I didn't call you to be miserable. I didn't call you to be frustrated and filled with anxiety. You're going to need to trust me on this. I seldom did I get a a pathway in which, okay, I've got a decision, I've got a person to call, and seldom was it that. It was more the, the confident, quiet assurance of the Father saying, I've got this, I've got this. And trust me, please, he's got this for you. He's got it. Uh, he's in control. And he's doing a marvelous work, and so much of it is behind the scenes, and... Um, you know, in, uh, in Isaiah 43, I won't, I won't go into this, but in Isaiah 43, do not remember the former things. Don't even consider the things of old. Behold, I do a new thing, the Lord says. I believe that word needs to be heard over and over and over again today. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. And then he poses the question, will you see it? Will you see it? I'm doing it, but will you see it? If you'll see it, you can get in on it. You can benefit it. You can, you can personally be benefited, but far more than that, you can become part of the influence, the kingdom influence of what I'm doing throughout the world. Do you not see it? So, if you don't see anything but what you're watching on TV, chances are you haven't got God's perspective yet. Get his perspective and begin to lead from a place of confidence and security from what he's doing. I'm going to close with a story. So one of the most precious stories that's come to my attention. It's one that I've known for a very long time. Um, but 
um, somehow it became a dynamic uh, in, in my life. And uh, Tammy and I traveled and spent all of the month of August in Africa last year. We were in Kenya where we went down and uh, we, uh, four or five hours, about, about four, four and a half hours out of uh, Nairobi into the Maasai Mara area where, where the Maasai live. And there's a, uh, one of our missionaries has been ministering to the Maasai for years. A glorious culture of people, and you know, they're, the, they're the herdsmen, the cattle herdsmen that can jump 10,000 feet in the air from a, from a flat-footed. They're just amazing people, smiling and embracing, and uh, just just a wonderful culture of people. And seeing what happens when Christ gets a hold of their life, and what and what they're able to comprehend and walk into is is an absolute joy. We went from Kenya to Zambia, spent a few days in Zambia, then from Zambia to Mozambique, then Mozambique to South Africa, where we climbed on motorcycles and traveled a week on motorcycle uh, to uh, Lesotho and to Swaziland and back into South Africa, then from Durban all the way back to Johannesburg, seeing missionaries and, and visiting uh, some, some beautiful people. And oh, I got to share the story over and over again about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, the story of Mephibosheth captures everything we've just been talking about and, and perhaps one of the most glorious forms that you, you, you will, I think, forever remember. By the way, can you say Mephibosheth? It was hilarious in Kenya because I gave them various options. Okay, I can do this, this, and this on Sunday. What, what, what would be your choice? And I told them a little bit about the story of Mephibosheth. And they said, we, we want Mephibosheth. Uh, I said, what, what is it? What did you want? And none of them could say Mephibosheth. Their, their, their language in Swahili or whatever the, that they speak would not allow them to be able to hear what I was saying and then to repronounce it. So it was absolutely hilarious. So here's the story of Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul. Do you remember the story of King Saul? And uh, at first, David had tremendous favor with the king and then somehow lost favor. And the king lost his mind and tried to take David's life. And, and the people adored David. And that was part of the reason why Saul changed his mind. He was out of jealousy and fear of, of David's uh, popularity and abilities. But it wasn't in David's heart to ever dethrone or upset or do anything against the kingship of Saul. But the king didn't believe it. And, but David and Jonathan... The son of Saul became very close friends, so close, in fact, that they cut covenant with one another. And the, the cutting of covenant means that they shared their blood and say, we, we will commit ourselves through death and in life uh, to, the, to the betterment of each other. And um, there came a day when there was a major battle, and Jonathan and Saul and his other brothers were on the battlefield, and they were all killed. The news came back to where uh, Mephibosheth was living. Mephibosheth was five years old at the time. His nurse, upon hearing the death of the king and, and uh, Jonathan and others, realized that Mephibosheth will be next because they'll come after him. Any descendant of the king who's now dead is going to be killed. That was a, that was a cultural uh, reaction and thought then. So she runs out with Mephibosheth, five years old, stumbles and falls, drops the baby, and he is crippled in both feet for the rest of his life. Now, we have years later, David is king. Other battles have been fought, and David, in a, in a pause of a moment, said to his entourage, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Is there anyone of the house of Jonathan? 
to whom I could show favor. Ziba, the uh, had once served under Saul, said, well, there, there is one, King David, there is Mephibosheth, who is lame in both feet. Mephibosheth, David says, who is Mephibosheth? He's, he's, he is the son of Jonathan. The son of Jonathan? Where is he? Mephibosheth lives in Lodabar, he says. Lodabar literally means place of nothing, place of total loss. That was the Hebrew name of the city that Mephibosheth lived in. Total loss. Mephibosheth hiding away, unable to take care of himself, crippled, could not walk. David says, go get him. Bring him here to me. Now, Mephibosheth is unaware of David's intentions. So when he hears his name being called through the dusty streets of Lodabar by the king's entourage, you can imagine him scurrying about and trying to find a, a little hiding place in this little shanty hut that he probably lived in. And when he was discovered in fear and trembling, he was extracted from that place and brought to the, to the chariot, if there was such a thing, that, uh, that, would, that would be able to take him back to the king's palace. So now Mephibosheth, in his broken state, by the way, Mephibosheth had called himself a dead dog. That's how he saw himself. So here the dead dog is, is broken and prostrate before the king, thinking for sure that these are his last breaths that he's about to take. When the king looks into Mephibosheth's eyes and says, Mephibosheth, I'm not here to harm you. I'm here to restore to you all that's been lost. Everything that was your grandfather's, the king, is going to be given to you. Everything, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth can't believe his ears, can't believe what he's hearing. Surely this is just a cruel hoax. And the king says, and not only that, Mephibosheth, but you will no longer live in Lodabar. You'll live here in Jerusalem, land of plenty, land of peace, land of, of promise. And you'll eat at the king's table as one of the king's sons. And those that are sitting here and hearing my voice, I'm challenging them and commissioning them to make sure that all of your properties, everything I'm restoring to you, will produce so that you will have ongoing uh, economy. It's going to increase and get better after time. And you have the joy of owning it without responsibility. And the end of the verse says, end of that chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 9 says, and Mephibosheth had everything restored. He ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons, and he was lame in both feet. I think that's one of the most glorious stories of what God's grace is. Now, now listen, it's one thing to be pursued, another thing to be rescued, it keeps getting better, another thing to be restored, but there are times even in your restoration when things fall apart, when you misbehave, when you choose ways that are other than godly. That's where the lameness continues. You're not lame in your identity, but you're lame in your behavior and your thinking. And the lameness continues. But God, in his restorative measure, doesn't hold back his promises or himself, no matter how lame you might be in your physical behavior and thinking and construct. How great is that? Don't you think that's worth telling people? Amen. Amen.
<clears throat> so let me, let me just close us in prayer, then the, the team will lead us in a little bit of worship before we close, and any closing comments will be offered. But my, my challenge to you is um, to make use of the time, make use of the season. Things that you're disgusted about, angry about, bothered by, things that are out of your control, God's doing something. But what's he doing? The word is, he's doing a new thing. So don't rely on things of old. Don't even consider them. Don't even look back to that. Look to him and see what he's doing. Not only in your life, in your business, in your family, in your relationships. He's doing a new thing. Will you not see it? If you'll see it, you can get in on it. Father, thank you. Thank you for all your plans and promises to us. Thank you that they're magnificent and procured to us through Jesus himself. Thank you that your work for us has been satisfied. Every, every issue that righteousness required, holiness required, justification required has been accomplished through our beloved Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough to come and to lay down your life. Thank you, God the Father, for giving what you prize most, your only begotten. Lord, you must have loved us a lot, and you still do. Thank you that you're pursuing us, that you're rescuing us, and that you're restoring us. May we see it. May we walk in it. May we realize all that you are accomplishing in our lives, have accomplished and are accomplishing, so that we can give you all the praise and glory and impact this world in greater measure than ever before. I pray that now in Jesus' name.